Hello, I'm Douglas Murray and welcome to Uncancelled History. Today I'm joined by Dr. Bill McClay to talk about Theodore Roosevelt. Dr. Bill McClay is the Victor Davis Hanson Chair in Classical History and Western Civilization at Hillsdale College. His books include The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, The Student's Guide to U.S. History, and Land of Hope, an Invitation to the Great American Story. Dr. McClay, thank you so much for being with it's me. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, of the four giants of American history depicted on Mount Rushmore, our subject today would appear to be perhaps number three in the shooting gallery uh, of our era. Theodore Roosevelt's uh, statue was recently removed in New York, not far from where we're sitting, uh, where it had been in front of the Museum of Natural History for a good century. Um, what is it about Theodore Roosevelt which is attracting so much ire at the moment? Yes, and you know, uh, one of the people who uh, came out against the statue was his grandson. Yes. Uh, great-grandson, uh, who is the uh, president of St. John's College and uh, a bit more an easy rider than a rough rider, I would say. But, uh, it, but what a betrayal, you know. Yes. Uh, uh, that, I think, adds to the piquancy of it all. I, I, uh, he approved the removal of yeah, his great Oh, yeah, he spoke statue. out. Uh, he actually spoke out both, both ways, but very un-TR. You know, <laughs> TR would be decisive, whatever was the case. But uh, I think it's because he represented a more uh, uh, aggressive in the best and, and maybe the worst sense of, of the words, but a more aggressive America, more confident America. And the statue itself can be taken as a representation of a kind of, um, uh, to use the language of the day, white supremacy uh, motif. Remind with, us of what the statue well, was. Well, statues he's surrounded by various, by, by Native Americans and by um, Africans and uh, uh, people of various uh, non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestant origin and clearly an equestrian pose, uh, clearly superior to all of these, and um, and of course, uh, it, it it honors his role in uh, as a natural historian, mm -hmm. as the creator or as, as the benefactor of this museum, as he was of the Smithsonian and and many other such institutions. Um, uh, but but for his racial sins, he must die. Uh, that that mm -hmm. that is the uh, the verdict. And and of course, uh, it, it's it's very odd because in some ways I'm not a, a huge fan of TR, but for entirely different reasons that the woke might find more attractive about him if they were willing to learn about him. We can maybe get well, into we'll, some of that. We will get into but, that. Let, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Though. But his racial <laughs> sins are the the, uh, the casus belli for his his uh, de defenestration. We will get into that, most certainly. Um, let's start at the beginning. Um, Roosevelt was born in New York to a rather privileged upbringing for the yes, day. Yes, yes. Uh, a, a patrician family, I think we would call them, not uh, uh, fabulously wealthy, but very comfortably wealthy. Uh, in in um, uh, Not far from where we're taping this, uh, in Chelsea, uh, 20th Street, uh, East 20th Street. Um, he... Uh, 
and he was he was very much um, a New Yorker, although an important part of his experience was uh, his time in the West. And in many ways, he represents that part of America very well, too. Uh, he was a New Yorker, involved in New York politics, governor of New York. Uh, you know, he, he uh, did quite a bit in this state, in the Empire State. He sort of has an imperial guy, and, and, and he wanted to, to uh, have uh, the United States to have an imperial role in the world. He was not at all bashful about that. He wasn't bashful about the ways in which that role might conflict with certain other commitments as in the Declaration of Independence, for example, mm. uh, to the idea that, uh, that the, the government is legitimate only when it's grounded in the consent of the governed, which is mm. not a guiding principle of imperialism. He's, uh, he's all over the map in, in all kinds of way, interesting ways. I want to tell you, um, this seems like a good moment to mention this, that uh, I, uh, years ago when I was a graduate student, I, my, my uh, graduate advisor, a man named Kenneth Lynn, um, we became very good friends and were until his death. And, uh, and uh, I met a lot of very interesting people at his house, one of whom was Edmund Morris, mm. the, the um, actually Kenyan, he's British, but Kenyan born and raised uh, historian who is sort of notorious for his uh, odd biography of Ronald Reagan. But, um, but he wrote a wonderful biography of, of TR. And uh, we had lunch with him at Kenneth's house, and, uh, and I asked him why he chose Theodore Roosevelt as his subject, and he said, oh, it's very simple, Theodore Roosevelt is America. He is America. He's America in all of its greatness, in all of its flaws, in all of its energy, in all of its um, cupidity and fecklessness. It, it, it's all there. And that's stuck in my mind as, uh, as, as I don't know that it's entirely accurate, but it's, it's a good starting point for thinking about why he fascinates us, why he's such an a, uh, endlessly interesting topic of conversation. And, and uh, you know, there's a, a wonderful saying, I, I get some of these off my chest here early on, uh, his daughter Alice, a notorious Washington sort of gossip and uh, backstairs operator, um, said, my father, I, I may not get this quote exactly right, but my father always wanted to be, this is after he has gone, my father always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. <laughs> In other words, he, was, um, he wanted to be the center of attention. And he was from fairly it, early on. Yes. Let's trace some of his life trajectory. Uh, so he's born and brought up in New York, fairly bourgeois upbringing for the day. What, ha what, what happens yes. next? How does he start his, his meteoric well, version of the American story? Well, I, 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 I want to talk about his childhood. We have to do that because um, he, a part of his story is his overcoming of his physical uh, defects, as he might have said, uh, his, his, his asthma, and he, he was terribly asthmatic, but that wasn't all. He had uh, headaches, stomach cramps, uh, very, all sorts of ailments. He determined and put, it, put himself upon a, a program of personal improvement. Um, his father built a gym for him, gymnasium, and uh, 
So he put himself through a rigorous uh, conditioning program uh, to overcome these, these uh, physical defects, and he managed to do it. He made himself into a legendarily robust individual who, whose very presence you know, communicated a kind of masculine overflow of energy. Uh, although he had a squeaky voice, that's an odd thing about him. He didn't, did, he's fortunate he didn't grow up in the television age because the squeaky voice was not quite commensurate with these other <laughs> qualities. But the, this, this saga, this, this legend of, of TR as a self-overcoming youth mm. is a very important part of his story. It's an important part of this story for him and for us, you know, it, it's, it's... And reminiscent of other American stories, reminiscent of Lincoln's upbringing and Yes, and, and, and also that, that, that program of study is a theme that runs through, you know, it's in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Um, it's not all physical in, in, in Franklin's case, and then you see it parodied in Thoreau's uh, Walden, and then it's in The Great Gatsby. Gat Jay Gatsby turns out to have... <laughs> early in his life, going on the self-improvement program. So it's part of the American sort of self-made man um, myth, if you will. I don't like that word myth, but because it implies falsehood. And it's not, it's a, it's a sort of energizing story. So he, he, he st starts to become a self-made man in a way. Yeah. Um, how does he get going in his, in his life? It, it, which in spite of being, having this privileged upbringing, he somehow never um, uh, came across uh, as a as a person who sort of uh, made it because he was privileged. Right. Uh, and he, in various ways, he saw to it that this wasn't the way he was seen. Did For he example, did he hide his privilege? As it were? Uh, no, no. He and he didn't do the the sort of the modern postmodern thing of pretending he didn't have it mm. or. or by, by going and hanging out with starving children on the other side of the world. I mean, he didn't, he, he wasn't into that at all, that kind of uh, uh, conspicuous philanthropy, or, or, or philanthropy in the sense of, I want you all to know how much I love humanity, what we now call virtue signaling. Mm. No. He didn't. That wasn't him. No, that wasn't him at all. He was a, what in his day would have been called a muscular Christian. Um, and you have this in Britain, too. It's actually where the term originates, I believe. But uh, uh, he was very much of that school of thought. So that, uh, uh, and this, this ends up influencing the way he sees America's role in the world mm. as an as a, um, actively Christianizing force um, in an almost Kipling-like way. There are a lot of Kipling-like qualities about, uh, about TR, I think. And, um, so after that, he, he, uh, that self-development, that physical culture phase, he goes off to Harvard, which is not really quite the, in a way, Harvard's more privileged now than it was then, in a way. <laughs> um, it certainly wasn't as distinguished an educational institution. He distinguished himself in his, as a, he, he, he was an okay student, but um, he pursued other, he was an ornithologist, he actually did scientific ornithology studies. And he started writing a book when he was an undergraduate about the naval aspects of the War of 1812, um, which was then published when I think he was maybe 20, 
23 or 24. Um, it's still in print today. It's still referenced by naval historians. Uh, it hasn't really been much improved upon. Uh, the, the, the quality of the research was extraordinary for a man in his early 20s mm. um, who was not being sort of guided. He just sort of went into, the, you know, he, he assumed he could go into the U.S. Navy archives and root around and uh, make sense of it, and that's what he did. Uh, so there was always this aspect. In this way, he maybe resembles a little bit Churchill, that um, that people forget about Churchill, how much of a journalist he was mm -hmm. and how much of his income over the life, his lifespan came from his books. Some of this is true with T.R. too. I mean, he's a writer. Uh, books like The Winning of the West mm -hmm. were, uh, were important for financial reasons. He, he was something of an intellectual. I almost hesitate to, to mm -hmm. say that because he, he just wasn't an intellectual in the uh, Greenwich Village sense of the term. Uh, uh, or, or an, acad an academic. But he wouldn't have necessarily wanted to have been thought of in those terms. Certainly not. Certainly not. It would, it would be. Would be. That would be being an egghead or right. some uh, similarly so, derogatory term. That, so how does he avoid being an egghead? He he avoids being an egghead by being a man of action, by talking that way, and uh, and to some extent living up to that. One of his good friends uh, was Henry Adams, the, the, the great-grandson of the second president. Um, and um, yeah, Henry Adams, a notoriously sort of dyspeptic observer of Gilded Age American life, but he really admired Theodore Roosevelt. And, and, he, and one of his, I think it's in the education, somewhere in his writings, he says that Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt was pure act. By, and he didn't mean act in the theatrical sense. He meant act in the, the, the um, energia, you know, uh, sense of Aristotle's sense of action. Um, uh, he, he was a, a man of, of activity. When he was vice president, briefly, <laughs> under McKinley, that was the most uh, terrible kind of his life because he had nothing to do. Uh, and there were no duties, and nobody particularly wanted him to do anything because he was seen as a sort of wild man, uh, and not without reason, I guess. But uh, uh, he had to be doing, he had to be doing something. He, he was 42 years old when he was elected president of the United States, and he had already, you know, I, I could try to create a list of all the things, you know, uh, uh, that he did, uh, the New York assemblyman, uh, police commissioner, uh, and you know, he went out and walked the streets. And this is not your typical patrician behavior. He went out and walked the streets at night trying to uh, find out about corrupt cops, and, uh, clean up the police force. Um, there's a strong reformist, moralistic, uh, mugwumpish, to use a term of the time, uh, element in, in TR, a, a strong sort of Protestant uplift, uh, cultural uplift dimension to him. He is what at that time was called, with a capital P, a progressive. Um, he fits into the American progressive movement, which if um, maybe I could jump back a little bit and, and be the history professor and say, you know, that. that what we call the progressive movement is basically the period between the Spanish-American War, 
1898, and um, the American entry into the First World War, 1917. So, you know, a couple of decades of intense reform energy in the land. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this, this all comes out of a sort of the perceived need to redress uh, the upheaval and imbalances of American life brought about by industrialization, mm. urbanization, massive immigration, all, all these things at once. And uh, uh, so TR was part of that. Woodrow Wilson was part of it, even though they were politically antagonists. Uh, uh, Robert La Follette, uh, there were a lot of other uh, progressive politicians. But but those two, T.R. and Wills Wilson, made it into the presidency. And, and much of the impulse behind progressivism was to sort of bring back from the chaos, uh, seeming chaos, of a modern industrial um, society that had broken down all of the old institutions, the sort of face-to-face -face institutions of a pre-industrial life, to bring back some measure of moral order so there's a strong moralism about the progressives, all of them, uh, or nearly all of them, certainly the, all of them who were prominent in politics. Um, and uh, so that's true of Roosevelt. He comes into office once he's president, you know, uh, talking about uh, what he called the square deal, which was a, a sort of um, uh, mutually respectful relationship between labor and capital, which had not been typical of the Republican Party up to that point. Um, now, we'll get to his arrival in office in, in, in a moment, but yeah. let's just go go back one uh, step yeah. again, which is um, you mentioned the Spanish-American War. Yeah. Of course, this is part of where Roosevelt makes his name, isn't it? This is where yes. the man of action emerges. Yes. Now, he's before this, he is... Um, so he's left Harvard. He's left, he left Harvard. He has a political career in New York. Um, he, he, he goes out um, to the, the Dakota Territory uh, at, at one point because he has this terrible tragedy where both his mother and his wife die on the same day, and he's devastated by this. Um, uh, and one of the ways he reacts to it is to just get out of Gotham and uh, go to the West, which is well, a very wild place. And he, he uh, starts running a ranch and develops a real affection for that, that part of the country. Um, and uh, this is where he begins to also think about what will become a great theme later on, conservation of natural resources, creation of the national park system. Um, setting aside uh, uh, millions of acres of federal of land uh, under federal uh, control. Uh, <clears throat> again, that's a mixed <laughs> blessing we could talk about later. But uh, uh, then he comes back, and he he is uh, eventually finds himself um, uh, assistant secretary of the navy. Um, and in that position, he, he uses that position to, to build up the Navy. He's very much responsible for the transformation of the United States Navy in this time from a sort of mediocre regional um, pickup basketball kind of operation, the JV, as Obama might have said, 
to being a world-class, impressive Navy, uh, one that the great white fleet sails around the world to sort of show off to the world. What does he do this for? What's his vision? Of well, his, his, his eventual vision is that America is ready, the United States is ready to come into its own as one of the great powers of the world. He, Alfred Thayer Mahan, you know, who wrote this famous book on the influence of sea power on history, and John Hay, uh, there's a whole group of, uh, of, of um, Lodge, there's a whole group of these the, and they, they are called imperialists uh, who, who saw uh, the next step for America was, was overseas. You know, we had closed the frontier. Uh, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner wrote this famous essay about the closing of the frontier in, in 1893. Um, so right around this time. Uh, so where, how were these impulses, this frontiering, exploratory impulse that is so much, they argued, part of the American character. Where's it going to go? You know, now we talk about going in space, you know, that, which, um, but at that time, you know, going abroad, seeking foreign uh, possessions, foreign markets for American goods, China, uh, you know, the Far East, all of these things are of immense interest. Uh, so the acquiring of uh, island bases in the Pacific for coaling stations in order to permit the great white fleet mm. to have a worldwide presence. It's an important, it's an important thing, I think, to, to dwell on for a second, that this, this was a period which America could make this choice or not. Yes. I mean, there were plenty of voices, uh, plenty of yes. people in America who, who didn't think America needed to have a sort of leading role Absolutely. in the world. You know. No, there's a huge debate coming out of the Spanish-American War um, uh, the, the debate didn't really occur before the war, unfortunately. Um, but it was really had to do with what to do with the Philippines after, you know, we, we had defeated Spain. So well, let, let, let's go back to how that happened quickly, the Spanish-American War. Oh, well, yes, it, it, it really had to do with American sympathy. It begins with American sympathy for uh, Cuba, which was a Spanish colony, close to our shores and for the, the uh, oppressive way the Spanish government, which by, by this point had lost almost all of the great empire that it had before the Armada. And uh, there, so there, there was a, a, a tension uh, over this. And um, it, it, it really came about, I think, largely because there was a, an explosion of American battleship Maine in the harbor of Havana. Um, and destroyed. No one knows to this day exactly what happened, uh, but of course the, the Roosevelt immediately seized on this to blame the Spanish, as did the William Randolph Hearst and the American Yellow Press. Um, uh, and eventually McKinley couldn't stop the tide of public opinion, and, and so the nation went into war with Spain, and, and a war that lasted just a few months and with almost no American casualties and with the, the utter decimation of the Spanish fleet. And th this, was, this was an era in which politicians were also soldiers, were also uh, well, leading yes. uh, 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 troops. And uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt himself uh, led a decorated unit. Yes, he, he, he left his bureaucratic job uh, and formed this uh, unit called the Rough Riders. Uh, and they um, 
I, I, by the way, I was trying to think. Uh, he wrote a, He wrote an autobiographical account of his exploits in Cuba, and uh, I forget who it was that said this, but um, some contemporary said the title of that should have been "Alone in Cuba," <laughs> because it is, he he magnifies his role and and his uh, his personal exploits almost beyond uh, credulity. Uh, credibility. It's rem reminiscent of the famous Churchill line that uh, history would be kind to him because he would write the history. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly, yes. Um, and so anyway, um, but he does, he does cut quite a figure in, uh, as, as, a, as, as a fighter. And may I bring up something that this, this gives back to the man of action that Henry Adams described him as. This is, it's a theme that runs through um, a lot of his political rhetoric, too. He has um, uh, a famous speech, and I think it's a wonderful speech, uh, about where he praises what he calls the man in the arena. And this gets back to your point about he would not have been wanted to call an intellectual, you know, somebody who sits on the sidelines and says, well, you know, um, these policies are all wrong. The, the, the war in Afghanistan this should have been done this way rather than that way. And sort of, meanwhile, just sitting in, in, uh, in one's uh, you know, lower, lower East Side apartment or, or wherever it is we are, <laughs> uh, um, uh, and, and, and not venturing forth with any kind of action mm. on behalf of what one believes in. He reviled that sort of thing. He, so the man in the arena... Is the, he's the person who's taking the arrows. He's the one who is uh, in a manly way, and he was, he was not at all reticent about using that word manly. Mm. A manly way will um, invest their blood, sweat, and tears. I sound again like him, but uh, in, in, um, in the cause in which he believes, put something behind his words. So this all sort of, you know. The, so he create and he so he creates the image of himself very successfully, doesn't he? I mean, through yes. the Spanish-American War, uh, and and afterwards he creates this image of himself as this sort of um, heroic American figure. Yeah. How does he then use that to reach the highest offices in the land? <laughs> he got him. He got himself um, uh, placed on the ticket with McKinley. Um, when McKinley runs for re-election. In which year? In, in 1900. Um, 1896 was the first. Uh, uh, and and uh, um, there's a lot of, there's some misgivings, I mean, he, he, some misgivings about this, but it's felt that he would, his energy and his celebrity would be helpful. Uh, his association with the, what was then seen as the success of the Spanish-American War. Um, I really need to deal with the Philippine controversy uh, before we go too much further. But uh, so he, um, and he's president uh, just a few months. I mean, McKinley's assassinated. Um, Roosevelt becomes president. Uh, so wh whether he would have been electable in his own right, uh, hard to say. Uh, uh, but once he occupies the office, he, he fills it. Um, to a fairly well, and 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 may I point out that that uh, it's an interesting point about American history that um, from the time of Lincoln's presidency, Lincoln's assassination, and then we go through a long period 
from 1865 on of, of weak presidencies. Mm. And there are various reasons for this. Uh, a big part of it is the failure of uh, Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, to, uh, to take control of Reconstruction. The mm -hmm. Congress takes it away from him and uh, does it their own way. Um, and uh, by the time Reconstruction is ended, somewhat ignominiously, um, the, 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 the power of the presidency is denatured, is, is, is declawed. And it's not really until McKinley begins a process of rebuilding the presidency, but it's really with TR. You could argue that, there's, that between Lincoln and TR, there are no uh, mm -hmm. powerful charismatic, important American presidents. With T.R. comes bursting on the scene as a complete change of tone. And he wants to do all kinds of things. He has a philosophy of government that is activist. Um, he wants to address problems of uh, interstate commerce. He wants to use uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act and other instruments uh, to... Uh, not necessarily to break up trust. That's a, a myth about him. He was more interested in bringing, bringing them in under the aegis of, of, uh, of a kind of government uh, control. Um, big business, he thought, trying to break up big business was to sort of stand athwart the energies of history. He didn't want to do that. He thought large combinations made sense. Um, but the thing to do was to regulate them. And, and find ways to regulate them. The best way to regulate them was through what he called gentlemen's agreements. You know, we'd all go out on the Sequoia, uh, out uh, you know, in the Potomac River and talk things over. Uh, we bigwigs, J.P. Morgan over here, and you know, uh, this, this banker over here, and this industrialist over here, and, we'd, and, and labor union organized, we'd work things out as gentlemen. Uh, strikes, oh, no, they didn't like strikes. Uh, and uh, or any of that kind of thing, but but he he uh, he was very good at uh, working out more um, agreeable, more harmonious relationships between labor and capital. Uh, but but he was willing to do that at the expense of the Constitution. Well, I was going to ask about this because the three people he's uh, with on Mount Rushmore are, of course, um, famous constitutionalists, indeed, including yes. the framers of the Constitution. What was, a, what was Roosevelt's own attitude towards the Constitution and the founding? Well, I, there's a famous story. Uh, when, in 1902, there's a, a coal strike, uh, um, or being threatened, and, uh, it, it, and it's, winter is coming on, and Roosevelt sort of tries to get it resolved. And... Um, and then he starts talking about taking, just nationalizing the coal industry. It's something unheard of in American history to do this. And uh, when the, this is questioned, he says, uh, the, the constitutionality of doing it, he says, to hell with the Constitution when the people need coal. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this did not get him run out of town <laughs> uh, to say this. Um, but it was, it was for him, it was not just a kind of devil-may-care attitude, such as uh, I'm afraid we see right now. Uh, there's a governing philosophy with him, which was of sorts. You may find this a rather thin philosophy, but he had a, what he called the stewardship theory of the presidency. 
And that was that um, the presidency was empowered, implicitly empowered, to do anything for the national good, for the public welfare, public commonweal, that the Constitution doesn't expressly forbid. Mm. So it's, it was a power grab for the presidency, but under the auspices of this notion of stewardship, that he was the, he was the, the ultimate steward of the Constitution. It's odd that you know, people didn't see the Supreme Court in that way at mm. that time. It, it, there was an opening for him to, to make that kind of assertion. Of course, there were strong constitutionalists who had objected to this. And, but in general, I think it, this is true of all the progressives. Uh, there was a feeling the Constitution uh, was a great it's sort of eight, late 18th century compromise document that kind of got us through the initial stages of national unification. It was fine, but, but we shouldn't venerate it. We shouldn't see it as in some way permanent. And by the way, Jefferson himself talked this way about the Constitution. Jefferson wasn't part of the Constitution. Uh, he was abroad, uh, having a good time in, 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 in the capitals of Europe. But um, it's uh, an uncharitable description of <laughs> well, Jefferson. Well, I, 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 yeah, maybe I, I'm a little bit of an animus to Jefferson. But, um, uh, but no, Jefferson could be very uh, casual about the Constitution, and it's a, uh, and Washington did not expect the Constitution to last. Uh, mm -hmm. He would be astonished it was still around. Lincoln, on the other hand, had a very different view. Lincoln venerated the Constitution. Lincoln, mm -hmm. Lincoln's um, statesmanship was constantly geared towards the, the protection of the Constitution, the mm -hmm. sustenance of the Constitution, which he saw as essential so Roosevelt, who, who claimed to venerate Lincoln, did, did not see this. He had an, an ability to not see what he didn't want to see, and he did not see this aspect. And he was only a little over 100 years after the framing of the Constitution. It, it was relatively recent memory still. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, relatively. As, as was the Civil War. And, as was the Civil War, indeed. And, uh, but the... the, the Feeling of many progressives, and this is not a uh, uh, this is not an irrational view at all. Um, it's, it's actually many many British observers took at the time that that the Constitution had been fine for the a decentralized agrarian republic, but America now was the leading by the, the beginning of the 20th century was a leading industrial power in the world, and all that had happened very quickly. Um, but in big cities, there was no sort of vision of, of, an, of an urban life animating the, the, the period of the founding. Um, it's, uh, it's an astonishing transformation. And the argument is not crazy that, well, we need different kinds of institutions. You know, the Constitution is designed, above all else, to prevent the, con the, the concentration of power. Mm -hmm. Because the concentration of power... Uh, results in corruption, uh, in in in, uh, in corrupt and even tyrannous use of power. So, uh, do everything you can to separate powers, uh, division of uh, of functions uh, between and among the branches of government, uh, uh, and uh, and 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 make it as hard as you can for any one of those one branches to, to do something unilaterally. Mm -hmm. uh, always give 
one of the other branches some tool, some weapon to use to make it harder, you know, veto for the presidency, <laughs> overriding a veto for Congress, you know, uh, constitutional amendments, and so on. Um, so it's this Rube Goldberg mechanism of uh, uh, countervailing forces. And, uh, and the professor says, no, we need concentrated power. And this is Roosevelt's language. I, I'm, I'm the president. And you know all the power of this great nation in some way courses into my office and through me. And I want to use it. Uh, I, wanna, I don't want to be tied down by these petty restrictions. So, um, yeah, there's a kind of uh, disdain for the Constitution that only grows into his second term. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, um, is... is uh, when he's, when he's re-elected in his own right. Yes, yes. Yeah, in his own right, indeed. Um, so I think that that's one way he is certainly different from Lincoln. Uh, his neighbor on Mount Rushmore. But one of the oddities about Roosevelt is, um, perhaps like, like Lincoln, uh, that both political sides like to claim him. Uh, you, that was a very interesting observation, yes. We should get into, into why this is. You, you've used the term progressivism quite a lot, so let, let's, let's do the left first. Um, what are the things from Roosevelt that the left still today in America might admire, venerate, build upon? Activism, um, a belief in the preeminent um, uh, preeminence of the national government and its responsibilities for the well-being. You know, Obama liked to uh, talk about Roosevelt being the sort of great great grandfather of national health care. On the centenary of one of Roosevelt's most famous speeches, uh, it was in 2011 on centenary, mm -hmm. uh, Obama goes to the place where Roosevelt had spoken and, yes. and yes. tries to sort of pick up the mantle, yeah. basically. So the, 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 uh, the, left, uh, the, the left either likes or should like, if it was paying attention and not thinking about obsessively about race, um, should like uh, on a policy level a great deal about Roosevelt. He was, uh, he was, uh, you know, one of the great debates in the 19th century was over uh, whether the American nation should be a consolidated nation state in the European fashion or should maintain its federal system with the division of powers between and among states and localities. He was thoroughly a nationalist, thoroughly. He, when he... Uh, came back, you know, he, he finished the second term, went off to Africa on a safari, and left his hand-pointed successor, uh, William Howard Taft, uh, in office. He didn't like Taft, predictably. <laughs> he, he, Taft wasn't, uh, you know, he, he wasn't off of a conservationist in various other ways. And so he comes storming back, starts giving speeches. Um, and he's, he's clearly going to contest the Republican nomination in, in the 1912. Um, and one of them he gives in Kansas uh, at, um, uh, I believe it's at Potawatomi, which is John Brown made famous uh, in a grisly way. Um, it's called The New Nationalism. That's what we, we named the theme. This is a speech in 1911. Yeah. Well, it's 1910, 1910. I think. But, but uh, it, it's before he's announced as a candidate. But um, 
And he presents this image of the nation as a, um, and this is a very left trope, um, as a marching army, that we sort of sacrifice the particulars of, of individualism and individuality. You think of him as an individualist, but in this, this way he wasn't. Uh, we sacrifice those things to the common wheel, to, to the imperatives of, the, of this sort of marching army uh, in which we, are, um, we, we uh, are, are, are bound together by exclusively our, by our American identity. Um, and he was very much a, 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 an opponent of the idea of hyphenated uh, identities, you know, Italian-American and sort of sort of thing. It was just American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he, uh, he was very assimilationist uh, in that way. That's another one of his contemporary sins, is his, his, his emphasis on, on assimilation. Um, although he was, that's really not a fair criticism, but it is, it is what it is. Um, uh, so <clears throat> to the extent that American liberalism in the 20th century has been about um, the ascendancy of national power, um, power in what, centered in Washington, and increasingly in the administrative state that uh, has, is extra-constitutional in character. Um, Roosevelt uh, was all for that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and, and from the point of view of someone like me, who, who thinks much of what's wrong with America now is, is that we've drifted away from our constitutional moorings and, and have this administrative this massive administrative state, which is answerable to no one and nothing, um, that this is something that that Roosevelt uh, deserves some of the blame for. Mm. Uh, but I think that the contemporary left would see him as just getting some of the credit for it. Now he uh, now Roosevelt broke from the Republican Party over the the new nationalism. Um, let's use that to sort of look at the other side of the equation, the bits of the contemporary right that also claim Roosevelt. A uh, number of uh, prominent Republicans, uh, Marco Rubio. Um, John McCain. And uh, Josh Hawley, uh, yeah. who's even written a biography of Roosevelt, a uh, Republican senator. These people also look uh, to Roosevelt. So what is it in the modern right that what do they take from him? I think that there's a vivid and unabashed patriotism, mm. unapologetic patriotism, and a belief in America as having some kind of mission to the world, and that the use of American power in the world it's a good thing um, that that uh, America stands for good things. I mean, this is something the left is very reluctant to sort of go that far. Um, not so much so the right. I mean, they they're not reluctant at all. I'm I'm not uh, I I'm not sure that I don't want to speak out of school here, but I'm not sure that a fellow like Hawley. I know he did write when he was clerking uh, for uh, a Supreme Court justice. I forget which one wrote this book on on Roosevelt. Um, I'm I'm not sure that he fully grasps how um, 
antagonistic Roosevelt was to, to the existing constitutional structure, the Constitution as it was framed, as it was designed, uh, with uh, its programmatic separation of powers and, and uh, um, division of uh, functions between various branches of government. Um, it, McCain was a military man who, uh, and from a military family, I mean, he was a son of an admiral, a nephew of an admiral, I mean, admirals, <laughs> admirals out the kazoo uh, in that family. Um, and there's a different kind of relationship to the country that one has when one has that um, status within the, the order of things. Uh, you tend to think more in terms of the nation and less in terms of the specific perquisites of localities. Um, now, there used to be, in the Democratic Party long ago, a sort of localist, especially in the South, a localist um, uh, contingent. But um, that, that's, uh, that, that has largely been, to extend it exists at all anywhere, the, the, the property of Republicans. And, mm. um, and so there, there, there would be some... Um, but they don't, there's, there's not much to console them in Theodore Roosevelt. He simply didn't have uh, that kind of sense of the land. He did have a great sense of the land, uh, of the sort of magnificence of the West, of the monuments and canyons and mountains and uh, other spec spectacles of the American landscape and the need to preserve them, a sense of a relationship of civilization and wilderness. This is actually an interesting theme mm. in him um, and in many of the people of his milieu. That's this sort of sense that, you know, the, the mistake that Europe had made it had become too civilized and that America had the chance to be a kind of uh, 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 a civilized country that nevertheless maintained a sort of relationship to the primal energies of, of an uncivilized, of a wildlife. This is where one of the things where the national parks uh, yes, come yes. from. Yes, and... And, 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 you know, Roosevelt was a great advocate for football in its early days. And, it's, and football, the more uh, bloody and, and, uh, and cranial capacity diminishing, the better. <laughs> uh, he believed in football as a contact sport. He believed in yeah. football yeah. As, a, as, a, as a brutal sport. I mean, he had, and, and wrestling, you know, he actually took an interest in uh, uh, when efforts were made to sort of clean up some of these sports on the collegiate level. As president, he, in several cases, he intervened and said, no, no, you should keep the rules the way they are. Uh, this is what builds men, is, uh, is this kind of... Uh, Stren strenuous life. It's another one of his famous phrases mm -hmm. from an essay, the strenuous life. Uh, one wanted to constantly be testing the limits, testing oneself. Um, he, uh, he wouldn't be um, the kind of guy who uh, at 42 would have decided to uh, live off his fortune and move to uh, Boca Raton and right. live on an estate. Right. <laughs> now, the, the, just to go back qu quickly to the new nationalism, what, 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 were the, um, what were the repercussions of that? How did that filter into American politics after his presidency? Oh, that's a good... I mean, because America starts to... 
um, starts to really get involved in the world, it yes. does enter World War One in the end. Yes, uh, and I think uh, the new nationalism. You know, he ran against Wilson in 1912. Um, his platform was the new nationalism. Wilson's platform was called the new freedom. And Wilson's idea at that time, uh, it really ends up being more of a campaign theme than anything, is uh, the, the need to break up large combinations, try to recreate uh, as much as possible the, the economy of uh, sort of Jacksonian America, and uh, uh, and and that that kind of liberal liberal individualism, um, rather than corporate, the, the increasingly corporate nature of the American economy. Um, once he was elected, he, that that was all gone, and he uh, started using the federal government. Uh, you know, there was a imposition of an income tax and the Federal Reserve. Not exactly a Jacksonian. Jackson would not have liked the Federal Reserve, just as he didn't like the National Bank. Um, uh, he he uh, a flurry of of activity on his part, using the power of the national government to reorder uh, American life. And that's again, that's something that I think he and others had in common. But but the, back to your question about the new nationalism. And that idea, I mean, it basically wins out even in Wilson's presidency. He doesn't call it that, but, but he's doing the policies of, that Roosevelt would have approved of um, had he been disinterested, uh, politically mm -hmm. disinterested. But it's really the, the war. An American entry into the war. Uh, World War I. World War I. You, you see uh, a fantastic centralization of economic, of the economic activity of the country on a scale never seen before. The War Industries Board um, was an effort to, and war, of course, always has this effect. War, particularly in modern times, to, to centralize uh, uh, activity yeah. to strengthen the hand of the central government, always. And it was the United States in 1917 was no exception. So um, uh, the, the uh, federal government becomes more powerful. And the idea, the progressive idea of wouldn't it be nice if we had um, the ability to, to direct the economy, to have a command economy, um, I mean, it's really a, a sort of Fabian socialist ideal. Uh, but uh, on American shores, expressed in American terms, uh, use all this intelligence that we're developing in our universities about the science of government, because after all, government can be a science like everything else. Of course, everything can be studied scientifically. Mm. So uh, why not? Why, wouldn't it be great if we could have sort of um, <laughs> At the top of the pyramid of governance, you have these, these intellectuals who are versed in the, the science of government. And down from them come the, the edicts and policies and directives that lead to a perfectly regulated, organized, efficient, and just economic system. That's the progressive vision. Um, across the board, the new nationalist vision. 
And uh, it triumphs for a time in the First World War. Um, it, not that it's especially effective. Mm. Um, and, and of course, we have a go-round with that in, um, in the Depression. Mm. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt tries some very new nationalist ideas, the National Recovery Administration. It's a complete flop because it's, as we need Friedrich Hayek, Hayek to explain this to us, but that there's simply no way that um, top-down regulation can do as good a job of um, adjusting the economy as the price mechanism. No. Um, and it, it, this, was, this was something utterly alien to the thinking of American progressives. You mentioned, of course, the antagonism between Roosevelt and Wilson. Um, in, yeah. in recent years, they've actually, of course, been united in a way and similarly mistreated it's posthumously. Right. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's name is, of course, now taken off uh, his old school, yes. his alma mater. Um, and, that, and that's for his, his views on, on race. Um, what, what, what do we know about Roosevelt's views on, on race and what would we think of them today? Well, that's, those are two different questions, of course. But, but um, I mean, uh, almost anybody from that time, we wouldn't, we, we would, uh, we, and I don't mean necessarily you and me, but uh, uh, the general tenor of public opinion would be sort of, well, that's not very enlightened of you, is it? Uh, but Roosevelt was actually quite, uh, quite advanced for his time. He doesn't get a lot of credit for this. Um, but he, you know, one of the famous things he did, and this may, again, this doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was, is he invited Booker T. Washington to the White House as an honored guest. Um, the, and um, as a Republican, you know, he didn't have the problem that Democrats did of having to please their Southern contingent. You know, the Republican Party had no uh, real uh, standing or power in the South at this time. But still, it was a, 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 um, a bold move on his part to give that kind of recognition to, to one of the leading African-American um, uh, in intellects and social and political leaders. Uh, um, one who also gets, gets little respect to these days. Booker T. Washington was an amazing man, and he's uh, treated... Uh, very badly, I think, because of his meliorist and accommodationist views about the, what would really bring about black progress in America. He was a gradualist. Um, he was a gradualist. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who started the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, uh, are more, were more flamboyant and more interested in legal um, solutions rather than economic ones. And... Uh, you know, you could be the judge of which approach might have been better. Uh, what happens at the end of um, Roosevelt's life? How, how, does his, um, how does his career and life end? Well, you know, he's um, uh, very uh, unhappy with Wilson in a lot of ways, even if Wilson was doing things that he might otherwise have approved of if he could have been the one doing them. Um, he very um, um, impatient for Wilson to get involved in the First World War. And uh, that's, um, that's a great concern of his. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, he, he um, we don't know how he would have felt about uh, 
something like the League of Nations. Uh, you know, he's gone by then. But he dies in... In 1919. 1919. What today, looking back, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning the main sin, as it were, of, um, of Roosevelt seems to be in the eyes of the modern era, the race issue, and the particular depiction of this one statue that used to stand in New York. In a way, as we're speaking, I, I'm struck by the fact that he also seems to run against so many other just contemporary stances on things. Your description of, you know, his attitudes towards masculinity, towards um, ambition, um, both personal and national, um, his sort of uh, thrustingness, uh, all of these things, they're not popular modern attributes. They yeah. are very much of the time, the Kipling-esque, as you say, yeah. sort of man of action who throws himself into the world. But they're not, they're not things that our age venerates in the same way, are they? Is, is that one yes. of the reasons why he's, his reputation's shifted? It, well, and by the way, it may be one of the reasons why he's, he's liked on the right. Because on the he, modern right. On the modern yes. right. And maybe not... Not maybe not all of it, but I, it, it, it's a it's surprising degree. People are willing to overlook his bad, from a right wing point of view, bad policies, and and uh, for, for the sake of his vigor, and and I would add to your list that he's a strong natalist. That is, he thought women ought to be about the business of making babies. And That's I, not a popular get, getting idea, getting on with it. Yeah, he, he was quite unabashed about that. <laughs> He, he wanted women to have babies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and he wanted the government to have a role in encouraging that, which again is sort of surprising. You know, uh, it, it's a, his, his his views were a little bit like uh, views that you might see in Sweden or other mm. European countries today, and, and not terribly effective, I might add. But but still, uh, in in government having a role, direct role in encouraging. Mm. Um, couples to to have children uh, and and to have families of the largest size possible. So in in, in a way, I mean, um, as we reflect on him, I mean, Roosevelt was like everybody else, a man of his time, and he had some views that were of his time. He had some attitudes of his time, and, and, and much more. But he did also have these these very forward looking ideas, which, as we've said, both left and right have tried to claim parts of. So. So when we look back at Roosevelt, I mean, um, he's an important figure to be able to still consider, to, oh, yes. to study, to, to look at, to see memorials too. I, I agree completely, and, and I have two thoughts about that. One is that I think I, I, I am very much opposed to canceling anybody of prominence in, in American history, in any history. Um, I'll tell you uh, quickly a story about... Um, going to the, the opera house in Rome uh, for the first time. And uh, my wife and I got there early, and, and uh, we were sort of sitting in our seats looking around. I look up at the ceiling, and there's a, a sort of medallion above the stage at, that, that states that, uh, that honors Mussolini as the, 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 the person who had the, uh, who was responsible yes. for the building. And I, I was shocked. I thought it hasn't been. This was this was about ten, fifteen years ago, more than that actually, and uh, we, we weren't into the sort of cancel culture mania of the today. But but still, at the time, I thought that's still there. 
mm. you know. And um, and I thought about it. And I thought, you know, bra- bravo, right, <laughs> for the Italians to to own that. Um, right. That as part. It doesn't of mean they approve it. It's just yeah, that's, yeah. that's and, the person and, who built it. I feel yeah. a little bit this way about. Um, uh, some of the, the the Confederate general statues, when those started coming down, I I, I saw the argument uh, against them. Uh, I understand it, and uh, and I think there's it's it's a powerful argument. I think individual communities ought to be able to decide for themselves, and not uh, have outsiders come in and pull their statues down. But anyway, I I don't I think Roosevelt, he's part of our past. He's a there's there's a there's all sorts of admirable, glorious aspects to him. There also are lessons to be learned from his errors and, mm. uh, and malfeasances. And, and, uh, and he's simply a part of us. I mean, I, I see history this way, that to learn about the American past is to learn about something that's a part of you, ineluctably. Um, so you don't want to cut that off. But the other thing, the second thing I wanted to say is you never know what's going to be useful in the future. I mean, in a way, history is, can be a little bit like an attic that, you know, you put things up there, you forget about them, they gather dust, then all of a sudden, you know, you realize, my God, this has something to say to me. You and need that, it again. It, it, yeah, it says something I, I'm not getting out of the contemporary discourse. And, uh, and I'll get, in the case of Roosevelt, you know, we, we left off you know, at the end of his life, you know, he doesn't really have a voice. We don't know really what he would have thought about the emergence of the sort of League of Nations, United Nations style version of, of um, multinational, multilateral uh, governance. What he would have thought about the EU even. Um, but I suspect that... Um, his views would have been a little bit like what, what I understand to be the views of de Gaulle. Uh, that is that um, uh, it, 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 the, uh, the Europe of the future should not be a Europe that is, in which the distinctiveness of individual nations is, is blurred and melded down into some European whole. But it's going to be one in which the distinctiveness of the individual parts of the individual nations of the individual mm. cultures, is is not only sustained but preserved, uh, uh, and that's I think that's how de Gaulle understood these things. He certainly didn't see France as assimilable to other any other nation, and uh, and and had the ability to extend that same vision to others. I think Roosevelt might well have been an American version of that if he had lived, and that we may, we may find yet in his writings uh, um, bits and pieces mm. that we can, we can incorporate into our thinking. So as we rummage through the attics yeah. of our past, that we might still need Theodore Roosevelt. Yes, yes. Dr. Yes. Bill McClay, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.